Good late morning, everybody. Thank you all for attending Pain Week. My name is Joe, and uh, just as a couple pieces of administrative housekeeping, one, if you would, please silence all your mobile devices out of respect for your peers and our speaker today. And secondly, if you haven't yet, please download the mobile app for Pain Week. We welcome any feedback on any of the sessions in the event. So with that said, this is course SIS 02, The Emperor's New Clothes, Multimodal Engagement and Improving Access to Care. And our distinguished speaker today is Dr. David Cosio, who hails from Chicago, Illinois. He's a, uh, with uh, the University of Illinois. Go fighting Illini. Please help me welcome Dr. Cosio. All right, good morning, everyone. It is still morning, right? Good morning, everyone. Um, so we're going to be talking about the Emperor's New Clothes, a multimodal engagement in improving access to care. Uh, if this is your first time meeting me, my name is David Cosio, and I am a board-certified uh, licensed clinical health psychologist, and I work at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center in Chicago, uh, which is the parent uh, VA to the University of Illinois. Uh, I work in their outpatient clinic as the psychologist in a multidisciplinary team, but I also work as the psychologist in the interdisciplinary CARF-accredited 12-week intensive rehab program. Uh, that having been said, I am not here on behalf of the VA. I am not here speaking on the VA. I'm here as a psychologist who works in the VA and in the community, um, just sharing what I've learned. You know, when talking about this subject, a lot of times patients will say, well, you work at the VA, so you don't have to deal with access to care issues. And that's not true, um, because we have access to care issues. But I also work in the community, so I'm very versed in the access issues that we face. So we're going to talk about ways in which to uh, identify those access issues, but ways around them, uh, and things that I've learned just kind of in my practice. So our learning objectives, we're going to learn which resources are available to help patients address chronic pain through the top five insurance companies. We're going to learn about the potential out-of-pocket costs for uh, resources to address chronic pain. We're going to learn about resources to reach out to specialists personally. And then we're going to learn how to prioritize less invasive treatments and intense treatments to the most using a treatment ladder. So... Everybody here may be a little bit familiar with The Emperor's New Clothes. I know I got a little bit confused because Disney came out with a movie called Emperor's New Groove, and then that threw me all off. So I get them confused. So just in case you guys don't remember, The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, there was an emperor who really liked to wear nice clothes and was really stylish, and he would walk around his town uh, kind of parading his clothes. And he had asked two weavers to come in and uh, make this unbelievable uh, new suit for him. And these weavers like freaked out because if they did a bad job, right, they, they would have had their heads chopped off. And so what they did is they came up with a scam. They said, well, we're going to tell everyone that you're, if you are only able to see this outfit, uh, if you understand the true meaning, if you, if you get it, if you don't get it, you're not going to see it. And so when the king paraded around the, the town naked, Everyone said, yeah, I see it, right? Because everybody wanted, didn't want to be the one that didn't see it, that was not competent to see it. And last year when I was here at Pain Week uh, during the welcome speech, uh, I really uh, loved the idea of that uh, story 
being used to talk about access of care because it's similar to what we're going through. We all know that there are all these other treatments that are available for pain management, but oftentimes as frontline providers, we really don't feel like we either have the time or we have the information or we have the resources to figure out how to get these access issues, good around these access issues. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So what is the current state of the research? So in order for any type of treatment to be considered effective for pain management, it has to show at least a 30% reduction in pain. Uh, you know, a pain scale of, you know, zero to three. There's gotta be a change of at least three points in that point, in that, in that range. What we know by looking at the research though, there's been several studies that have compared different types of treatments to each other. And there was one that looked at acupuncture, behavior therapy, exercise therapy, and non-steroidal medications. And they didn't find that one was any better than the other. And so the overall, the research evidence provides little support for us to choose one type of treatment or over the other. So it's something else that is guiding us to make the, decision, the decisions that we are making. Now, before I get into what the research is saying, I want to make it clear, I am not the one saying this. So if I say something you don't like, don't throw the tomato at me. It's not me saying this, it's the research saying this. So when it comes to medications, medications is always going to have a role when it comes to pain management. We know that from the meta-analysis that have been done, the, the, the pros and cons of using opioids, I'm not going to go into that because there's going to be plenty of that going on today. But I also want to recognize that there are other medications that can be used for pain management. So those are the non-steroidals. Those have been shown to be effective for things like arthritis and back pain. Um, there's been meta-analysis to suggest that antidepressants are helpful. Uh, that they give a modest reduction in pain, that makes sense to me uh, because you know the same parts of the brain that are responsible for pain are also responsible for the way that we emotionally feel. So sometimes a low dose of an antidepressant may give enough of pain relief for your patient. The best evidence goes to the anticonvulsive medications. Those are carbamazepines, the pregabalins, the gabapentins. Again, there's going to be an amazing talk, I think, tomorrow morning on this. So I'm going to defer to them to talk about that. There are some pros and cons on those medications. Relaxin, uh, muscle relaxants have been shown to be effective as an adjuvant, not a primary therapy. And then topical agents such as lidocaine and capsaicin or Icy Hot have also been shown to reduce pain. What about pain interventions? So when we talk about pain interventions, we're talking about three main areas. We're talking about the injections and the procedures that are used, but we're also talking about things like surgery and the implantable devices. So the research in the US shows that the US uses a lot of epidural steroids and facet joint injections in comparison to the rest of the world. The rest of the world does not use them at the rate that we do. Why? Because the research doesn't support using them at that rate, right? In this country, we use epidural steroids at an alarming rate and usually as a monotherapy and the research does not support that. It supports using them in conjunction with other treatments, but that should not be the only thing that's occurring in the treatment plan. The research says this. What about the facet joint injections? The facet joint injections have been shown to be effective for facet joint pain, but they also used for other conditions and there may or may not be any research to support that. So again, that might explain why we have such alarming rates of using injections when the research is kinda hmm, about it, right? What about surgery? Oftentimes I'll have a patient come in who says, you know, I just had surgery two, three years ago. Why am I having pain still? And I say, of course you have pain. Why would you think that you wouldn't? And they seem surprised by that. And then they get angry at me. 
And I said, well, don't get angry at me. What did the doctor say? When you sat with the doctor, did the doctor say it was going to be 100%? And they said, well, no, they didn't say that. And I said, well, what did they say? Well, 60 70%. And what's your pain now? Oh, it's about a 5 or a 6. That's about right. And the research says that, that these surgeries are effective with the understanding that the patient is still going to have to engage in pain management even after surgery. Several meta-analysis have looked at the implantable devices, so spinal cord stimulators and intrathecal pumps. So I'm going to be very forward in telling you that I'm not a big fan, but I do think that they are wonderful options for specific patients. So I think about 10% of the patients that I evaluate are actually good candidates for these things. Why? Because you need to maintain them. You have to make sure that you're not engaging in certain behaviors that can alter the function of these treatments. Um, and you have to have a good relationship with your provider. I'm just not going to plant this device in and then see you later, never see you again. This is a relationship. I, I, I equate this to an engagement ring, right? I, this means you're going to have to stick around me at some point. Um, and so, again, there is research to support them when they are used with good candidates. What about physical medicine and rehab? So when it comes to physical medicine and rehab, physical medicine suffers from the same problems as psychology does. In that psychology, we learned that it didn't really matter what type of treatment you used, you were going to get about the same kind of result. And we're seeing that in physical medicine and rehab. I don't think anybody in here is going to argue that exercise is effective. We know it is, right? I had one patient who said, well, I went through 25 different treatments with them, and I always leave physical therapy as my last, because uh, they always say the same thing. And then when we got to physical therapy, he had used everything and nothing worked. We got to physical therapy, and he said, oh, yeah, that worked while I was doing it. And I say, well, why aren't you doing it? It worked. And he goes, well, you know. I know what? Right? It worked. You found something that worked. Do it. Um, so again, the research says the same exact thing, is that exercise is a, an important aspect of treatment, uh, but there's not any research to show that one type of exercise is any more beneficial than another. Um, where physical medicine really shines with their, where they are strong, where it's, they are, is part of an interdisciplinary team, they are the backbone of the interdisciplinary team. Um, you know, these teams... Um, they're made up of different disciplines. You know, they're usually led by a physician of some sort or an anesthesiologist or an osteopath. And then they have a, a physician or a physiatrist, uh, sorry, a, phys a physiatrist or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, recreational therapist. And then they have someone who works in the mental health uh, realm. And then sometimes a nurse and a pharmacist, right? But physical medicine is, is a backbone of that team. They also are really helpful in teaching our patients about posture and body mechanics and using self-care aids through our rehab process. You know, um, people don't realize that the way that we sit, the way that we lay in bed, the way that we drive, the way that you sit at your desk has a huge impact in your pain. Uh, and so oftentimes, physical therapists aren't really teaching physical therapy uh, techniques. They're oftentimes talking about body mechanics. Uh, now, what's interesting to me, uh, I, I like a lot of stuff. I'm interested in a lot, if you've not noticed that. Um, what's interesting to me is that there were 177 of these programs, the interdisciplinary programs in 1970s. Uh, this is when they first started coming out. By the year 2000, according to CARF, the CARF accreditation, the Commission on the Accreditation on the Rehabilitative Facilities, they said that we had gone up to 300. That's not a lot. 
And by 2010, when I asked them again, we had dropped down to about 75, 80 in the country. Why? These things have been helpful. And you're going to note that a lot of it has to do with third-party payers. A lot of it has to do with the use of opioids in, in, as a, in replacing some of these other treatments. What about the psychological treatments? So psychological treatment as a whole has been shown to have a modest reduction in pain. Again, same part of the brain. That makes sense to me. But again, the research says that it really doesn't matter what type of psychological approach you use. You're going to get about the same results. So the most popular ones are here on the board. So behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic therapy, stress management, emotional disclosure, biofeedback, and hypnosis. Um, some of these are used in a lot more than others. You know, this morning I talked about CBT and acceptance and commitment therapy. Those are the ones that are showing to have the most research support for. Uh, but again, the research also shows that these others can be helpful as well. Um, when we compare the psychological treatments to other treatments like the medications and the interventions and the physical medicine and rehab we just talked about, again, there's no research to show that one is any better than the other. What about complementary and integrative health? So complementary and integrative health is a new name. Uh, I don't know if everybody's aware of this. So it used to be called complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM. Uh, but that was changed last year or the year before. And the reason why it was changed is because people were uncomfortable with that word alternative, right? And so now it's called complementary and integrative health, but it essentially is the same thing. It is a system of practices and pr products and procedures, and usually we break them into four different categories. So this could be mind-body medicine, which includes things like biofeedback and hypnosis and yoga, but it also could include things like natural biologically based, so those are herbs and aromatherapy. It also can induce uh, manipulation body-based, so those are chiropractors, massage therapy, and spinal manipulation. And then there's energy medicine, which includes things like acupuncture and healing touch. There is a website that you can go to, and it's the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. And that has become my like bookmark on my phone, uh, because in the last two years, that website has changed drastically, not only because the name has changed, but because the government is pumping a lot of money in this area. As a result of the opioid epidemic, they really want to find whether these treatments are successful with different types of pain. And so every month I go on this website, there's new information, um, which is exciting, right? Because they're showing that there is research support for some of these treatments. So when it comes to chronic pain in general, there's some evidence for these types of treatments you guys can read. When it comes to low back pain, again, these are the treatments or the, the, the modalities that are showing promise. And then they even broke it down further. So osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, headaches, neck pain, fibromyalgia, IBS, and other conditions. And again, this is probably dated. If you go right now, there's probably even more than this. Uh, so that's really exciting. Now, the American Academy of Pain Medicine in 2014 made a recommendation that at the least a pain program must include medication management, but that it also must include evidence-based interventional procedural therapies, which we reviewed. They also need to have ongoing behavioral therapies, which we reviewed, and they have to have interdisciplinary care available, uh, which, we're gonna, which we talked about. They also suggested using evidence-based complementary and integrative health modalities. So again, they are echoing everything that I just went over. So when I go around the country and I talk to providers, frontline providers, nurses, psychologists, 
uh, social workers, you know, comp uh, physical medicine and rehab personnel, they always say the same thing. David, this is great, but my patients don't have access to this. I can't get this to my patients. And my response is usually is, I'm not sure about that, right? I'm not too sure. Um, I think there's three things that we kind of have to think about when it comes to access issues. One is, is insurance coverage. Another is, is what health services are we recommending? What are we talking to our patients about? And then the timeliness of care. So there's three different aspects we need to be talking about. Um, so what I did is, um, as I said, I work in the community as well, and so this is a, a subject matter that I come in contact with with my patients. Um, I went on, on online and did some research to find out if, in fact, you know, is this just like a knee-jerk reaction that we have, or is there really access issues, or are insurance companies not covering some of these treatments? Uh, so these are the 10 medical services that typically are not covered by the insurance company. And you'll notice number six, which is acupuncture, which is usually when this topic comes up, um, is not one of the ones that are typically covered. And when I actually show you the different insurance companies, that might not be true. It really is dependent. Uh, the other thing is mental health is another one that comes up as being a barrier, but according to the Mental Health Parity and Addiction e Equity Act, if the insurance company does offer uh, coverage for mental health, it has to be just as good as the coverage that, it, that, that they give for medical care. So if they offer mental health coverage, it has to be just as good. All right, so I went into the research and I said, what are the insurance companies that most likely people are going to be connected with? And so according to Forbes in 2018 in their study, these are the five companies that are the most commonly used in this country. It's United Health Group uh, or the Medicare or Medicaid, but there's also Anthem, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield. We, that's the one we have in Illinois, uh, Aetna, Cigna, and Humana. So before I go into this, I don't want anybody to throw a tomato at me because I'm not saying this, these are national plans for each of the insurance companies. That having been said, you need to know the insurance, the plan that you have for your state, because states could have multiple plans. You also have to know what is covered in your plan, because sometimes you can add things and you can take out things. So first lesson that I learned was, just because the standard plan covers it, doesn't mean that your patients is gonna be covered. You really need to know what is covered in your patient's plan, right? So these are the standard plans across the US. So when it comes to the five different insurance company, the one that had the best coverage was, that's a question. <laughs> what do you guys think had the best plan? Medicare. I was shocked. Medicare, Medicaid ha covers almost everything. So this is Medicare, United Health Group is Medicare, Medicaid. They don't cover acupuncture depending on the member's plan, again. But they pretty much cover everything else. They don't cover meditation, which let me tell you, none of them do. And they don't cover Reiki, which none of them do either. So in most part, they cover a lot. I was surprised. And this is the one that they want to take away, right? This is the one that they're talking about getting rid of. That scares me. Now let's look at the other one. So I'm not gonna say one is better than the other, but you make a decision for yourself. So this is Anthems. You'll notice that they say a lot more no's, right? This is Aetna, even more no's. And then there's Cigna with no's and Humana. So one of the things I thought was interesting is that the more you pay for your insurance, it looks like they cover less. Um, 
So when someone tells me, oh, biofeedback is not covered, most cases it is. Here's the key is that you have to use their language. You know, if they say person is standing on their left foot and with their right hand on their head, you say they are standing with their left foot and their right hand on their head. You have to use their language. Uh, if not, they're not going to cover it. And when they say no the first time, because they're always going to say no the first time, is to go back and appeal, right? And usually when you appeal, they'll cover something. Um, all right. So then the second thing, the, that's one thing, is to go back and to appeal and, and not, don't take the first no as the, the first answer and know your policies inside and out. The second thing is to consider the, the out-of-pocket cost. You know, sometimes some things are better to pay out-of-pocket than they are to go through this whole rigmarole, uh, but not very many things because things are a lot more expensive than I thought. Um, so, for example, if it's an over-the-counter drug, on average, that's going to cost you anywhere between five to twenty-five bucks, right? That's manageable. But when you start getting prescription medications, depending on what it is, you know, if it's an anticonvulsant, if it's an antidepressant, or if it's an opiate, it's going to range in the amount of cost. It's going to be a lot more than the over-the-counter. What about if you want to refer to a pain center? And this is uh, most common, the question that I get is, well, I'd like to send my patient to a pain center. What, do you know of one in my state? I don't know 50 states and all the pain centers. There's no way I'm going to know that. So I'm going to show you where you can find out. Um, but if someone were to pay that out of pocket, you're looking at close to $5,000. That's a lot. And then when you start looking at surgery, the most common type of treatment for chronic pain it's anywhere around $30,000, which is usually the average. What about TENS units? That's one of the common things that I see clinics like handing out like candy. They handle those out like, like nothing. And the reason why they hand them out is because they're 100 bucks. It's not so much. But when you look at the implanted devices, the spinal cord stimulators and the intrathecal pumps, you're looking at anywhere between thirty to 55000 depending on your insurance coverage. What about physical therapy? Physical therapy can cost you anywhere from $50 to $350 per session if you're uninsured. And for psychology, if you go to cognitive behavioral therapy, it can cost you anywhere from $125 a session to up to $250 a session. I don't know who's charging $250. If you are, let me know. I'd like to work where you work because that's not how much I get paid. San Francisco. That's, I need to move to San Francisco. No, I can't afford to live there. Okay. Um, well, that offsets the cost, right? That's why they're charging you $250. Um, acupuncture typically costs anywhere from $75 to $95 for the first session. Uh, and this is all coming from the Cost Helper Health website, which is uh, a website that's on the references section. Now, this is an interesting finding that I had. So in this country alone, we use $50 billion in complementary and integrative health. $50 billion are already being spent on complementary and integrative health. So when people say, say to me, those are shams, we shouldn't put money in those things, here's the answer. They already are. People are already spending the money on it. So my motivation is, is I'd rather tell someone the research is showing support in these complementary integrative health modalities for your condition as opposed to somebody just going blindly from one to the next to the next and spending all that money. I'd rather them use the money in the thing that actually the research is showing first and then actually uh, then pursuing some of the other ones later. So people are already spending the money. They already are. So did you know, because I didn't, 
that insurance companies that don't cover acupuncture will at times have affinity programs where they'll give you a discount, so a 20 to 40% discount in using their acupuncturist, so people who are connected with that insurance company. I didn't know that. United Healthcare offers a $20 uh, towards gym membership uh, for, for 12 times. If you go 12 times, you know, there's 12 months, so if you go once a month, they pay $20 a month. So that could be up to $240 a year for you to go to a fitness center. Um, my dad uh, told me that his uh, Social Security will pay for him to go to the gym in Florida. Um, and that's like 30, 30 to $40 a month that they pay for. So again, knowing your plan. Blue Cross and Blue Shield offer subscribers a discount for massage therapy, but again, it has to be a massage therapist connected to the network. Aetna will give subscribers discounts on massage therapy. Reiki sessions will get covered. So before when I showed you the standard plans, Reiki is not covered, but it will be covered as long as it's part of an interdisciplinary plan. So if a Reiki master is part of the team, uh, the um, interdisciplinary team, they, that might be covered. Different states have different programs. So Seattle, for example, has a program called Complementary Choices, where they give discounts for yoga, exercise trainers, Pilates classes. Uh, and then there, you can always use your flexible savings account uh, for some of the complementary and integrative health pro, uh, modalities. What else can you do? So when your patient is sitting in the session with you, a lot of my focus is, is not focusing on what they need to look at in their insurance policy or what, you know, what is covered or not covered or pursuing something outside of themselves. I want to know what they're doing for themselves. What are they doing to help themselves? So we have discussions about diet. If you were here last year, we talked about the anti-inflammatory diet. Are they engaging in the anti-inflammatory diet? Are they eating you know, candy and you know, Cheetos? And an oatmeal and cereal, because we just found out in the news that those things are contaminated, right, with weed killer. And so are they eating those things? And could that explain why their system is upset and inflamed? So the anti-inflammatory diet. Are they drinking enough water? How are they drinking their water? Because, you know, I'm not going to drink the water out of the tap in Chicago. No way. That water comes from the lake. You know how many people died in that lake? I'm not drinking the water out of the, out of the tap, and so I have to clean, I have to filter my water. Are they filtering their water? Um, are, or you can buy water from the plastic, but then that opens a whole other issue. Um, Epsom salt baths are very helpful. Is the patient using those? Are they using heat and ice? You know, if a patient comes in and they're reporting arthritic conditions or, and their symptoms are cold, you want, to in, in, you want them to use heat. If they're inflamed, if it's hot, you want them to use ice. Physical activity and recreation. This is probably where I focus most of my time. You know, if patients aren't moving, they're not going to get any better. And so oftentimes, especially with our men and women in uniform who are returning, um, a lot of them used to be engaged in sports and in recreation, and they let go of that the moment that they get hurt. And so one of the things that I've learned to do is, is to really spend time talking about recreation and what they used to do. You know, I had a young woman who came in last year after this conference. Her mom was in this conference, and then she came to Chicago with her daughter. And um, her daughter came in because she was talking about cutting off her leg. She uh, suffered from a chronic uh, complex regional pain syndrome um, in both sides. And so the one side was the worst, and she wanted to cut off her leg. And so her mom brought her to me to figure out how she would not cut off her leg. I said, thank you. Uh, so I sat down with her daughter, and one of the things that I did was talk to her about what was the things that she used to engage in, what was the things that she really enjoyed. And she really enjoyed skiing, 
and scuba diving and skating. And I said, well, we can get you back on that. You can start doing those things now. And she's wheelchair bound. And she looked at me and she kind of looked at the wheelchair. And she looked at me and she looked at the wheelchair. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, I know you're looking at your wheelchair, but you can still scuba dive and you can ski and you can do skating. You know, I take people to who have no arms and legs to do those things. So if you have your arms and legs, you can do it. So guess what she just did this last winter? She went skiing. What do you think she's doing this summer? She was in the Keys. I wish I could have gone with her. Scuba diving. She's also a roller derby chick. She's pretty rock and roll. Um, my point being in, is that she's living her best life. And it's all due to the recreation therapy. Recreation therapy is basically any sport that needs to be adapted in order for that person with whatever condition can do it. Um, and so any condition can be adapted to do the sport. So I've seen it in bowling. I've seen horseback riding. I've seen golf therapy. I had another guy who came to me and said, my identity was to be a golfer, right? That's my identity. And I can't, pl and I can't play golf anymore. And I said, why? Why can't you play golf anymore? And he said, I just told you. Are you stupid? I just told you that I have neck and shoulder pain. How can I go play golf? And so I introduced him to golf therapy. What do you think he's been doing all summer? He's been at the green playing golf with a, with a therapist, right? Getting him to play the game. So recreation therapy, social support. This is something I want you to write down. The American Chronic Pain Association. American Chronic Pain Association. A lot of you nodded your head, which means you're familiar with this organization. But for those of you who are not, this is an organization of patients who have chronic pain. Why is that important? Is because they do three things really well. One is, is that they look at the research and they do summaries of the research using uh, you know, normal language um, in layman's terms. And that's a really good resource for your patients because if you refer them to do some type of treatment, they can read about it in a way that they can understand. The second thing that they do really well is that they do a newsletter and they, call, they send it to your home if you're on their news list. Why that's great is because they do a, um, like a focus on some topic um, and gives them information about that and kind of keeps, it's called the, the Chronicle, I believe is the name of it. And then the third thing they do, which is, uh, related to the next point is that they will connect your patient to a local social support group. It's free. It doesn't cost the patient anything. But if one does not exist, they will help the patient create a support group. So it's a wonderful resource. Social support is a very important in pain management. Also, spirituality. You know, when we talk about spirituality uh, in our pain education school, I would get really nervous when the chaplain would come in because the chaplains usually focus on spirituality expressed through religion. But there's a lot of other ways of expressing your spirituality. It could be music. It could be art. It could be nature. Uh, and so we've you know, helped the chaplain explain, expand the definition of a spirituality. And so reconnecting people with that is important. Sleep hygiene, if you were here this morning in my first talk, most important thing you're going to see in most of your patients is that they have some type of sleep disorder. So looking at their sleep hygiene, making sure that they're going to bed on time and getting up on time and not taking naps, not taking medications to fall asleep, trying to naturally fall asleep. Those are going to be things that are going to help your patient. Weight management. So this is something that most insurance companies will not cover, right? 
But again, there are a lot of messages out there, a lot of uh, resources available on the internet for patients to uh, look up how to do weight management, relaxation practice, same thing, there's a lot of resources. And then your patient may need lumbar support, they may need a TENS unit, or may they need, may need traction for their neck. Uh, but again, I don't want the patient to become dependent on those things. A lot of times, patients will come in living in their, their back brace, and I'm like, sir, you can't be in your back brace all day. That's not, that's not the way this goes. And no one's talked to them about that. Or if they did, they didn't listen. Uh, so those things can be helpful. I already talked about that. If you have patients who are not able to afford medications, there's a website called needymeds.org, and that's a clearinghouse for medications uh, that patients can get support for. And then Stanford University actually has a self-management program that's available uh, in every, pretty much every state uh, that's for people who are aging. All right. A lot of my time I spend with my patients dispelling myths, right? They come in with a lot of expectations. You know, if I refer them to acupuncture, they feel like that's going to be the magic bullet, right? Or if I, re I refer them to osteopathic manipulation, that is going to be the magic bullet. And oftentimes, it's the expectations that need to be set, right? So I spend a lot of time uh, correcting a lot of myths and misconceptions. So the first one is, is, you know, MRI findings. So I have a patient come in saying, I have neck pain. And the doctor said I had a bulging disc at L1, L2, L3. And I say, well, you're blonde, too. What does that have anything to do with it, right? Why do I say that is because L1, L2, L3 is the lumbar, lumbar spine. And, and they're complaining about pain in their neck. What happens in a lot of cases is that when people find an MRI finding, they become married to it. Like, that is the cause of everything. And I oftentimes have to explain that that may have nothing to do with their pain. I have three bulging discs in my back, and I function. So how is it that I have three bulging discs, and you have a bulging disc, but I'm able to function, and you're not? Let's talk about it, right? So MRI findings, not necessarily the, 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 the thing that's causing the pain. You know, I try to give patients coping strategies. What things can they do to cope when their pain is not that, that serious, when it's minor? So playing games. A lot of them use coloring books now. That's the in vogue thing to do right now. So I have coloring books in my office. Uh, remember that 90% of low back pain uh, subsides itself within 12 weeks. So I think it's like 80% of cases don't need any type of treatment when it comes to low back pain. So the best treatment you can give someone is... Time. Time is the best treatment sometimes. Um, you know why that is? Is because when they did a consumer report and looked at low back pain patients, not a lot of them were very happy with their results, actually only 60%. So that's not very good for going through a surgery, right? Pain is mental too, so you want to explore mental health treatments, so psychotherapy, CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, like they talked this morning. Um, exercise, how the importance of exercise, if you're not exercising, if you're not moving, and if you're not sleeping, you're not going to get any better. So we need to make sure that you're moving. What kind of exercise are you doing? Um, they're probably going to feel worse if they're not getting any sleep. I jumped the gun there. You know, how are they taking their over-the-counter over over medications? Did they try using those first? Or are you just coming in to me first without having tried some of the over-the-counter medications? Are you expecting to be 100% pain-free? Because if that's what you're expecting, you're going to be very disappointed. That's not going to happen. Um, why is that? 
is because, you know, most of us walk around with some level of pain. You know, the average is anywhere between a two or a three. Most of us are walking around with. So if you're expecting to have zero pain, you're expecting to have something that most people already have existing. Why do we tell people to get out of bed? Is because if they stay in bed, they're going to lose muscle tone. They'll lose about one to three percent of muscle strength if they stay in bed. And so, again, if you lose muscle tone, if you mu lose muscle strength, that's going to increase your pain. Your body is going to be weaker. And again, it kind of creates that cycle. It propels that cycle. It, it fuels it. And then again, you know, setting expectations about how long treatment is going to take. Let's talk about timeliness of care. So we talked about insurance coverage. Let's talk about timeliness. And we talked about the health options that are available. So when it comes to timeliness, this is where we're going to have to start thinking outside of the box. Um, the VA has done a good job of this. So we do a lot of shared medical appointments. So the, that is when you have multiple patients that have a, multi, uh, a similar condition come in. Why that's important, especially for pain, is because pain is a social disease. Um, and so when, there is in, in an, when they are in a shared medical appointment, they're talking to each other, but they're also listening to the doctor's plan for each of them, right? So they learn from each other. They learn from, from different cases. Um, that might be a way for you to be more timely in seeing some of your patients that have similar conditions. Uh, what about telehealth? Telehealth is using anything in telemedicine technology to give a service. So that could be the telephone, that could be FaceTime, that could be Skype, that could be Google, you know, on the, on the internet. It could be wearable technology. Sometimes we have wearable technology that sends information back to the hospital. Uh, investing and expanding in the workforce. Good luck with that. That's the one that usually is the last resort, right? That's not going to happen. Or you're going to have to reduce administrative burden. The number one complaint that I hear across providers, across disciplines, is the amount of administrative burden that we have. And so sometimes it's lightening that burden that could give you more time with your patients. You also want to consider mobile apps. Um, and a lot of times when I go across the country, especially in rural communities, they have um, the barrier of distance, right? Patients can't get to the rural uh, the urban communities. And so one of the things that I um, encourage using are mobile apps, because uh, it seems like everybody at, in these day has a smart app, right? And so you should be able to download. Uh, I'm more familiar with the coaches, so the PTSD Act Mood Coach, the CBTI Coach, uh, stay quit coach because VA developed those and so we, we use those a lot with our patients uh, but I've also uh, used some of these others so um, talk space uh, the sleep cycle the lifestyle one so I've used Fujicate a lot when I go to the grocery store and I sit there with I'm the guy that's sitting there with the thing in the grocery store that's me uh, and then meditation and biofeedback there's different ones so these could be resources for your patients the other thing that I hear from providers is, okay, can I find someone like you in my community? And I said, there's no one like me. I'm, I'm unique. My mom said I'm unique, right? Um, but I can find somebody who does the similar things that I do, and how you do that is by going to the national organizations of the respective discipline, right? So these are the list of all the national organizations by discipline. Um, and so it will give you a good start to look in your community to people who are not only part of those organizations, but that are licensed and uh, being supported by these, by these organizations. Um, so some of them have one, and some of them have multiple ones, depending if I could find uh, a resource. Now, in the VA, the way that we train our providers is that we use a VA stepped care model. Uh, this is 
public domain. People that are not in the VA use this. And this is how uh, providers can approach patients when they come in. So the first step is that the patient has to be engaged in self-care. What is the patient doing in terms of their own self-care? Are they managing their weight? Are they exercising? Are they getting sleep? Are they having support? Are they engaging in relaxation exercises? Or is their diabetes managed? What are they doing? That's step one, right? That's even before they go to their primary care provider. Once they get to their primary care provider, then that's when we start doing a thorough evaluation and start coming up with a treatment plan. That's also when we start doing a lot of pain education. So the pain education school that I've mentioned a couple of times happens at this stage, is at the primary care stage. If the patient needs more than that, if their, their case is more serious than that, then they may need a secondary consultation. And that may be to an outpatient pain, pain clinic, but it also could be to an outpatient mental health clinic. If you were here in my first talk, you'll know that in a lot of cases, patients have comorbid mental health conditions that aren't being addressed. And so a mental health referral may be necessary at the secondary consultation stage. And if the patient needs more than that, then, then that's when you start including a tertiary pain center or interdisciplinary program. Um, so in our VA, we have the CARF accredited program that uh, is the most intense of the four. Now, this is not really helpful to a lot of people who are not in the VA because you may not have access to these things. So I'm going to show you a different model. This is a different model that can be used by any primary care provider or any frontline provider. It's a four-step process. It's a stepwise approach, uh, and I'm going to go over each one. So step one. Provide self-management education. What are the general health promoting activities that you can push? These are the ones on the left-hand side. You guys can read. I'm not going to go through them. And then what pain management strategies can you use with your patient? I already talked about posture. We talked about weight, the anti-inflammatory diet. We talked about relaxation strategies, self-trigger point mas uh, uh, massages. So they're going to be talking about that later this week at the conference, I think. Action-oriented support groups and education. That's the first step. After that, you go to the second step, which is you start using some of the non-pharmacological therapies. That would be psychological interventions. We talked about CBT and ACT. But that also includes the complementary integrative health modalities that we talked about. So that's the acupuncture, the massage, the chiropractor, the meditation. And then rehab therapies, obviously, and then extra, uh, the different types of exercise is the step, second step. After you've explored those and exhausted those, then you can start the third step, which is the pharmacological therapies. And these are the non-opioid pharmacotherapies that are topicals and the oral therapies. And then there's some that are specific for the neuropathic pain, right? The tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs, anticonvulsants. If someone needs more than that, then that's when you go to step four, which is the interdisciplinary team. Why? Because in the interdisciplinary team, it's all about setting expectations. That's our first and foremost role, is to make sure that the person has reasonable expectations, because usually when they come to us, they don't. Um, the second thing is to address the comorbidities. So that's why there's a psychologist on staff. That's why there are physicians on staff. That's why there's our pharmacist on staff. Uh, there's addiction therapists on staff is because we look at the different um, comorbidities that could complicate the case. Uh, so we also evaluate patients for suicide. We talked about that this morning. If we're exploring opioids, because we do use opioid therapy with our patients at times, we make sure that we're doing the four A's regularly. So that's assessing for analgesia, activity, adverse effects, aberrant behavior, and affect. We're also using the mitigation strategies that are going to be talked about ad nauseum this week. You're going to hear it from everyone, so I'm not going to go into them. But there are the urine tox screens, the prescription drug monitoring programs, opioid agreements, opioid risk 
tools and, and scheduling frequent follow-up visits. We also address when patients have comorbid um, opioid and benzodiazepine combinations. Um, they oftentimes refer the, the, those cases to us because we need to wean them off of one of them. Um, if, if we talk to them about the risk of opioid overdose and the use of naloxone distribution, and we may even start a taper. And that's at the interdisciplinary rehab stage. That's not left for the primary care provider to do. So I mentioned pain ladders or using a pain ladder. So this is an example of a pain ladder. It is not the pain ladder, it's an example of one. Um, as you'll know, as you'll notice, you start off here at the bottom, right? And it starts off with the NSAIDs and over-the-counter medications. And then slowly it uses some of the other interventions until you get to the implantable therapies. Those are the last resort. What I think is interesting is, is that on this pain ladder, look where opioid therapy is. Look what's right underneath it. Is every patient who's on opioids had corrected surgery? Most cases, no. And where did I get this from? I got this from a, 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 a pharmacy, a, pharma, a big pharma study. So how do you select treatments? So you want to use a pain ladder, or you can use a stepwise approach, or you can use the VA approach. I gave you three different approaches to use. You can use the one that you're most comfortable with. So use it, the pain ladder as a guide. You can, you can decide based on the type and the intensity of the pain. You know, does the person have physical and cognitive abilities? Um, when I talk to providers, the question that I mostly asked is, is why work with an intellectually disabled population? How do I go about getting informed consent? And I say carefully and slowly, right? That's not easy, but it can be done, right? With the next of kin and the, whoever is making the medical decisions. Concurrent symptoms, you know, what else is going on? Previous experience and expectations. What is your previous experience with these treatments? What is your patient's previous experience or the loved, their loved ones? Consider cultural and spiritual influences. You know, I work in inner city Chicago. Most of my patients are African American, tend to be on the younger side. And when they would come in, we would offer them acupuncture and biofeedback and hypnosis, and they would say, no, I don't want to do that. And at first I thought they were just being difficult. Uh, when I find out and I started to build a relationship with them, I realized it had nothing to do with them being difficult. They were being told by their uh, church or their pastor that they shouldn't be doing those treatments because they were against their religion, right? And so it required education for the patient and those providers. Patient preferences and coping styles. This is where shared medical decision-making comes in. Time and time again, when providers say, you're going to do this, you're going to do physical therapy, and you're going to take this pill, and you're going to come back in a month, the first thing the patient's head says, the brain says is, no, I'm not. I'm not doing anything. I call that the rebellious teenager, right? Instead, we can say, out of these treatments, because the research says there's no difference between them, there's not one that's any better than the other, out of all these treatments, what are you willing to do? Because if the patient chooses, they're more likely to do it, and they're more likely to stick with it. That's when we actually see pain management results, is when they actually stick to the treatment. And then if they have support by their family and friends. All right. So I was asked to give you three case studies, so three, three situations that when you come in uh, to your practice, you might face. So the first one is a patient shows up to your clinic saying that his insurance or her insurance company does not cover complementary, complementary and integrative health for their lower back pain, and they don't have any money to pay out of pocket, right? So what could you do? First, 
decide what complementary and integrative modalities are the ones that are showing the most promise and push those first, right? Teach the patient what they can do on their own. So they could do self-massage. They could do yoga on the TV. I've done that myself. Uh, buy a book. I talked about a couple of books this morning that would be good resources for patients, uh, including my own. Um, if the policy says the therapies are covered and, again, medically necessary, then you need to kind of appeal for it or use their language. That's how I've shown to have the most success. If they say, you know, a person has to stand on their left leg and raise their right arm, I said the person stand on their left leg and they raise their right arm. They exactly what, what to meet the criteria. I mean, obviously, if it's true, don't lie. Don't, that, we don't want you to do that. Uh, check out resource pages for the therapy. So the page that has all the different associations on it, you can check it out which ones are available in your local community. Concern, consider referring the patient to a community training clinic. Here, here's something that I've learned. You know, the VA has, they're a closed system and they're very private and they don't want other people coming in. But when I first started 10 years ago, um, we didn't have acupuncture. We didn't have some of these other treatments. We didn't have chiropractors. We didn't have, and patients would come in, and we really believed that some of these treatments would work, and so we started building relationships within the community. Here's the best relationships we made is with the local schools. We have three schools of acupuncture, and we're lucky to have three. Let me start there. We are lucky to have three schools of acupuncture in Chicago, and we built relationships with all three. And guess what? One of them offered acupuncture for free. The other offered it for five bucks a session, five bucks. And the other one had a reduced rate. In all three cases, they all offered cheaper services. Same thing with mental health. If you go to any university that has a psychology program, a, a graduate psychology program, oftentimes they will have a community clinic where they will offer free services to patients from the community. So again, look at your universities that are near you to see what clinics are available that could potentially be helpful for your patients. Consider non-pharmacological options that the insurance does cover. So does the insurance cover cognitive behavioral therapy? Most of them do. Do they cover spinal manipulation and chiropractors? Most of them do, so try those. And then consider non-opioid uh, pharmacology, so herbal products and topicals. That's case number one. Case number two, patient lives in a rural community and some of the treatments are not available in their town, but they're interested in alternative options. So you'll notice the steps are pretty similar to the last, the last one I, that I went through. How they're different is, is that I also added the mobile apps that we talked about. Whoa. Um, that's one way that to do it. The other thing to do it is that sometimes there are urban uh, clinics that will use telehealth for patients in rural communities. So sometimes you can connect them that way. Uh, and then last case study number three, patient presents with increasing lower back pain complaints and requests for a dose increase while decreasing activity. So this would be when you would refer them first to an interdisciplinary team. Then what they would do is make sure that there's no evidence of pathology. They would address other comorbidities. They would set realistic expectations. Again, look at self-management, non-pharmacological therapies, assessing the four A's, use mitigation strategies, and maybe start an opioid taper. Again, my name is David Cosio. If you liked what I had to say today, like me on Twitter or on Facebook. Also, I'm a first-time author. I just came out with a book last month. Uh, really good resource for your patients. Um, it goes about, it describes all the different types of therapies that are available, and it also talks about how to get them and the pros and cons of each of them. So it's a good resource. Thank you, everybody, for coming in. Yes. Thank you for the talk. It was great. And um, 
something like a ladder? Because I personally have an issue when surgery or something more invasive is at the top. The notion is I do all those things and then that's really the prize. Right? Mm. So I use the ladder, I pull out the ladder, how I use it. This is not a correct way, this is how I use it. So how I use the ladder, if I can get back to it, is I pull it out and I say, look, you're coming to me at this stage, right here. And in talking with you, what I'm finding out is that you haven't tried some of these other things. I'm going to push the non-invasive treatment first, because the research doesn't show that one is any better than the other. I tell them that. And then I would rather try the non-invasive ones first to see if they're going to, to be helpful. Then I usually get, well, I've already done physical therapy. And so what I say to them is, is that anytime you use any treatment, there are three things that you need to consider. There's you, there's the treatment, and there's, there's the therapist who's offering the treatment, right? If any of those three are off, it's not going to work. So I don't know where you got the treatment, I don't know who that person is, and I don't know what you did and what your state of mind was at that time. So I'm gonna ask you to do it again with my guy or my girl and in conjunction with whatever I'm referring. And oftentimes they buy it at that point. I don't get a lot of resistance at that point. Did that help? Okay. Any other questions, comments, concerns, complaints? Yeah. So the, uh, the VA, obviously, uh, the VA is required to have one of these structured programs in every vision, so every region has one. So they're required to have one. But besides the VA, there are in the community. So there are. Um, I'm not part of a one, but there are. So if you go on to this website here, the Commission on Accreditation for Rehab Facilities, it lists all the treatment facilities that meet their accreditation process, which tend to be interdisciplinary programs. So you can go on that website and type California, and it'll come up, right? Or New Jersey or Idaho or whatever. Is that? Yep. Okay. Was there something that people were hoping to get that they didn't get, so that way I can put it in for the next time? No, yes, maybe so? Palliative medicine is its own monster, right? I feel like th th when it gets to palliative medicine, it's about making the person comfortable. I think all rules go to the, out the door. But again, that's just my opinion. It's not oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you're talking about palliative care for someone who has yeah. a good prognosis. Right. Yeah. No. Still probably hard to consider. Yeah. Yes. Special sauce for that? So uh, uh, we do see that, especially with the, the, the different wars, the different generations coming through. Um, what we do is acknowledge it. So first of all, as we acknowledge the potential that it's happening, we have a thorough evaluation. We get those providers who are providing the care involved. And then it really is about getting the loved ones that are involved with that case involved in the care so that way there's multiple people that are aware. But um, yeah, 
I don't know if the special sauce is that. No. What are you looking for? I gave you that, I think. <laughs> I think I gave you that. It's very hard population, right? So in our, in what we do is we offer, so f first of all, in Illinois, it's, it's almost every patient comes in with their family. Um, we do. We have a problem where it's like 15 people come into one small room, and then we have to be like, no, not all of you can come in. Um, and so part of it is, is uh, you know, we allow them to be in the medical appointment if the patient is comfortable with that. Um, we also welcome them to our pain education program. Um, and a lot of times the patient will say that, oh, I need to bring my wife to that. She's the problem. Or, you know, so, and so we'll welcome them and we'll say, yes, absolutely, bring them in and they, and they can participate in the program as well. That's how we do it. But this is where you get into the picadillo, right? Because it depends on the relationship of the family. You're assuming that the family, you know. Yeah. Right. My, my limited experience tells me that if a family, if a person wants their family involved, they usually bring them. And when they don't bring them in, it's because they don't want them involved. But it's the patient's choice, right? So we ask patients if they have somebody they want to sit in the, into the appointment with them. And sometimes they'll be like, no. And sometimes they'll be like, yes. Those that say no, there's a reason why. There's usually a reason why they don't want that person in, right? Yes.